Thank you very much. Um, you know, Matt's been the last one to preach when there's uh, chocolate wrappers on the pulpit. Isn't that, isn't that fun? Get that out of my way. <laughs> so good. That must have been EBC school, actually. Um, hey, look, welcome. If you're new to our church, we are working our way through the book of Romans, which is a book of the Bible written by the Apostle Paul, explaining really at great depth the great wonder of God's grace for us. That is the book of Romans in a nutshell. And um, for a church, it is for our church, uh, it's been a significant journey already, hasn't it? It's been a significant journey already. We've been listening to some, some weighty things from Romans. Some weighty things. Uh, we've been listening to Paul labor, labor this problem that we have, problem of sin. We've been sitting underneath this, these really, he's been making us confront these really ugly truths about ourselves that we like to not really think about too much. But Paul has been, he's been holding up the mirror to us, make, making sure we take a good look at what is inside of us. He's calling us to a moment's honesty before God, before ourselves, that we would acknowledge that we are sinners by nature and by choice. And that we cannot begin, even we can't even begin to hope to dig ourselves out of the hole that we're in. This is what we've been hearing. And finally, last week, you'll remember, Matt, we finally hit Romans 3. And um, Matt helped us see this great hope we have in Christ. And so today's passage for us is actually, it's the game changer. Matt kind of he, he, he went a little bit further than he should have last week just to get to, this, to, get to the good stuff. And um, I'm glad he did. He helped us see, but today we're going to be really spending some good time in it, digging our teeth into it. This little paragraph we have today, especially the front half, we're gonna, really going to be focusing on 21 to 26 today. Uh, the back half will leave till next week, actually. Um, but it's hard for me to overstate just how important these few sentences are in your Bible. It's, hard, it's honestly hard for me to get anywhere close to overstating this. I'll let some other people try. This is what the great reformer, Martin Luther, would say about this paragraph. He would say that this is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. The central place of, the, sorry, central place of Romans. This is the center of Romans, but also the center of the whole Bible, he would say. Scholar Leon Morris, an Aussie scholar, he would say that it is the single most important paragraph ever written. That's just massive words. Um, Aussie, another Aussie scholar, Michael Bird, he calls it the epicenter of the book of Romans. And finally, the uh, influential American pastor, John Piper, he said that these, this paragraph contains the most central and important words of the Bible. So that's what we're dealing with today. No pressure for the pastor, just quietly. When you hit a, verse, a passage like this, and this is what all the, you know, the heroes of the faith through history have been saying about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I hope today we hear God's message for us, and I'm sure we will. Uh, let's, uh, let, me, well, let me just tell us our theme today. Our theme today is grace. Our theme today is grace. We're going to be looking at three different words that end in shun. There's a great Colin Buchanan song. He sings a song about song, big words that end in shun. That's what he says. Uh, and he defines all these words that, um, that we, we saw in this passage. And today we're going to be doing big words that end in shun. Um, the first one isn't actually in the, in the passage. So this is my, this is my um, 
my imposition. Intervention, the intervening grace of God, grace from above. Number two, justification, the justifying grace for the undeserving. And finally, propitiation, which is that tricky one there, which is a word that we all use all the time, I'm sure. Uh, me and Larissa were chatting in the car this morning about propitiation. No, not really. Um, propitiating grace that costs God. And again, that last one is very unusual, and we will talk a little bit about that one. Uh, let's pray before we dig in. Lord, we pray today for your words to just be clear and powerful, Lord. And, and um, Lord, as, as, as I prayed upstairs and, and Larissa prayed again, Lord, that, that my weak, empty words would be filled with your power. Lord, and, our, and that this church, Lord, all of us would be able to hear your voice through your word today. So give us soft hearts to do so. Amen. Amen. Firstly, intervention, grace from above. Uh, you might have noticed in the world of marketing and advertising that everyone seems to be intent on convincing you you have a problem that you didn't have and then selling you the solution. If you haven't picked this up yet, you'll see this everywhere, right? Um, here's a problem you didn't have yesterday, but now you have this problem. Let me explain the problem to you. Ah, can you see the problem? Now let me show you the solution for just four easy payments of $49.99. I will give you this mop, which will solve all your life's problems, um, right? No, no one cares about the mop unless they can see why they need the mop, right? Do you understand? Um, they're trying to sell you something, so they're trying to convince you you have a problem. The tech industry is probably the worst at this, like the whole, like, pay $500 for like cordless headphones that you don't need. How, how, how much do a cord, does a cord really affect your life? Not much. Anyway, uh, Paul has been doing really the exact opposite. He has been not trying to sell us a, a, a solution to a problem we don't have. He's been trying to wake us up to a solution we really, really, really do have, a very real problem. Not an imaginary one, not something that'll make your life a little bit better. He's trying to sell us. He's trying to convince us that we are in the pits of hopeless despair without God. He's been spending three chapters helping us see that we have a very real problem. Uh, the Canadian New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, he says this about these verses. He says, until people know that they're lost, they don't ask to be found. Until they know they're, until they know they're under sentence of death, they don't ask for life. Until they know they're under the wrath of God, the love of God won't mean anything to them. Until they know that they're guilty, they won't ask for pardon. So Paul himself spends almost three chapters getting there before he spends six verses explaining the solution. <laughs> That's, I actually I disagree with him. He spends the rest of the book explaining the solution, really. But these six verses is the core of it. And so last week, you will have remembered Matt's big build-up, right? He spent a long time in last week's message, if you were here, building up to these two words in Romans 3.21. You know, the, 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 the three chapters of the pitch black, followed by the, the light of the dawn of verse 21. But now, the, the image I have is, uh, is uh, like Gandalf cresting the ridge, right? First light on the fifth day, look to the east, I'll come. The, if you remember the scene, Helm's Deep, I might be the only Lord of the Rings fan in the room, apparently. Um, but that scene for me is iconic, right? It's the, it's the all hope is lost and then, that's right, Gandalf said he's coming. And they look to the hills, and there he is with, his, with the army, right? These words, I want you to associate that image with these words forever now, right? But now, hope. Hope has come. What, what is it that has changed? Verse 21. But now, what, what, 
what is the intervention of God? But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Friends, Romans 3 is good news for all of us. It's good news for all of us who feel like we have disqualified ourselves from the grace of God. Romans 3 is good news for all of us who feel like we are weak and unable. Romans 3 is good news for all of us who know that we will never measure up. Romans 3.21 is good news for all of us who know we're out of second chances. Romans 3.21 is grace from above. Grace from above. God, he is intervening into our mess. This is what he's doing. He has come. He, he knows exactly what we need before we know we need it. He is not waiting for us to ask. He knows what we need before we need it. We don't know we want it even. He, he comes to us before we draw near to him. He entered into our mess while we were his enemies. He has come. He comes for us. He intervenes in our lives. He intervenes in this world. He sent Christ into the blackest black to bring us hope. And he does not wait for us to draw near to him before he comes near to us. This is the initiation of God, right? He is the great initiator. He doesn't just come into our already pretty good lives and make them a little bit nicer, a little bit more religious. No, he comes to give us a whole new life, a whole new life, grace from above. And I, I know our church, I know that we could probably just press pause on this sermon and spend the next two hours going around the room one by one and hearing this story on repeat. Stories of God's grace in real lives, the way he has intervened, made himself known to us, poured out his grace into our world, brought hope when there was no hope. We could, we could literally just do that for the rest of... In fact, I imagine there's going to be some of that in heaven just quietly. Hearing the stories of grace again and again and again, how he has rescued us. And this is what we need to start with today. This but now is this grace from above that God has poured out on our world. He has appeared from on high. This message does not come from our church or from a person. It comes from God himself. There is grace for the sinner. It's grace from the sinner. This is, comes from the hand of God. Uh, today, our passage, we're going to be focusing in, in on this this idea of justification. That's, that's, that's the big one today. Justification. It's going to be, we're going to be, um, maybe, maybe one way to think about it is, is, is this. Paul is trying to help us see how God saves us. Not just that he does, but he really wants us to get our heads around how God has moved in our world to save us. He's really concerned with the how, the what and the how. And so we're going to come to the heart of the passage today, the justifying grace for the undeserving, justification. But now, the righteousness of God has been made manifest, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. That's one of our memory verses, by the way, so make sure you highlight that one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Free gift of grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justification is at the heart of the gospel. Um, so let me just define justification. It's one of those words that is in, that's a biblical word. It's in, it's in there a lot, and yet it's a word that sometimes we can have a slippery grasp on, I think. And so let me take a moment to uh, define it. I'll use actually like a te- textbook definition from Mr. Wayne Grudem, who's a, a systematic theologian. He says, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, firstly, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And he declares us to be righteous in his sight. It's a legal act where he declares us to be righteous. It's it's a legal term, and it comes from the world of law. Okay, so back in 2,000 years ago, when when Paul was writing this, he was was taking a picture from the law courts and applying it to our salvation. And this this is the image, okay? This is the scene. So try and imagine this with me. You are guilty of a crime. We've, we've actually just spent three chapters of the Bible convincing ourselves, oh, having the Bible convince us, having God convince us that we are indeed guilty of a crime, right? Um, in case that you haven't been convinced or it's your first week, um, let, me, let me make maybe one more uh, illustration. Imagine with me you have a tape recorder around your neck, an invisible one, and it only records you when you say something along the lines of, I think everyone should do dot, dot, dot. Or um, people should never dot, 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 whatever it is. And it records your version of how people should live. And at the end of time, God takes that invisible tape recorder and presses play so that you can hear your standards for people's lives. How should people live according to you? Is anyone in this room going to be able to stand up to their own standards? <laughs> course not, right? This is, this, is, this is actually the whole point of chapter 2 of Romans, if you're listening. Romans 2 is about this, right? And that you have standards, but you don't even live up to them yourself. At the end of your life, no, we will find that we can't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's perfect law. We are guilty before God. We fail even our own test of righteousness. And so on that day, we will find ourselves standing before a judge Guilty, without a hope, without an excuse, and really our own words are going to condemn us, aren't they? And so you stand in the dock awaiting your sentencing. What does God do? But now, but now God justifies you. He justifies you. He declares you righteous. Righteous. And he goes even further than this. He says, through your union with Christ, because you've been joined to him in faith, his righteousness now counts as your righteousness. So you're not just innocent of the crime. You are righteous in the eyes of God. This is justification. Jesus takes your sin upon his shoulders 
And at the very same time, you receive his righteousness in his place. This is called the great exchange, right? You receive his perfect record in place of that sin that you had. So when God looks upon you, he doesn't just see guilty. He doesn't just see not guilty. He now sees Jesus, the perfection of Jesus. Do you see how important justification is? How much we need this to be true for us? What did you earn? What did you do to earn that verdict from the judge? You did the crime, right? That, that's what you did. What did you do to earn it? Absolutely nothing. All you did is be a guilty person. That's, that was your job. Well done. You did that part. So did I. No, we bring nothing to the table of God. We bring nothing to the bargaining table with God but our sin and our mess and our brokenness and our need and our endless problems. Jesus brings what? Free grace. He brings a bloody cross. He brings kindness. He brings mercy. He brings his own righteousness, which he gives to us in exchange for our sin. He brings us the open hand of fellowship. He brings us friendship with God through the cross. There is nothing we can do to earn this. There's nothing we can do to earn this. This is free gift, a free gift of God. And it is the most counterintuitive aspect of your reality. Nothing is more counterintuitive to your, the world that you live in than God's free gift of grace. Nothing in the world. Uh, there's one story I heard uh, a pastor sharing about when he, he ran a Bible study at a uh, military fellowship, service fellowship. And he had these two people in his, in his, in his small group, and he was... He was uh, studying this doctrine from the Bible in this Bible study. And these two people were from like mainline churches, had nominal faith, and so you know, grew up in church, attended church, but um, very kind of surface-level faith. And as he led this Bible study, it became obvious that these two people had never heard this from the Bible. They'd never seen it before. Never heard it. And it, it caused two very different responses in these two individuals. The first one, uh, this woman who, who, um, who'd grown up in this church had never heard this before. She, he described her reaction as, as, as if she was coming home for the first time. She broke. She was awestruck. Tears of joy. How come no one ever told me this before? You mean I can be, I can be right with God? just by trusting him. She's never heard that before. No one had ever told her. And so her, he, this pastor said, reckons that, he's like, I can't be sure, but I'm pretty sure that she got converted that day. And she'd been in church her whole life and had never heard the gospel. Justification by faith alone. The opposite was true for the guy. He said, this guy would just stare at these verses, looking at these verses, and he just kept shaking his head and saying, it can't be right. That just can't, that just can't make, it doesn't make sense. It can't be true. It can't be true. It can't be that easy. It can't be easy. It can't be that easy. Surely I've got to do something for God. It can't, it can't be easy. He, he said um, the, the, the stuff about the good works, yeah, that makes sense. I, I get that part. But this free gift of grace sounds suspicious. No matter how much this pastor tried to explain it, we'll take him to different parts of the Bible, show him, the, the, the truth in the word, he just, just couldn't, couldn't accept it. Barrier, right? Just 
No, that can't be true. Why do you think that was the case for him? Isn't it because this kind of sounds unfair? It sounds too easy. He said it, right? It was too easy. People should be able to earn something before God. That's, that's the objection, right? People, we, we should be able to be good people and God, you know, accept us on those grounds. He was still clinging to dear life, to this idea that his goodness made him okay before God. Romans 1, 2, 3 is telling us, uh, what did we just read in chapter 3? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. I've got to ask you, are you that man? Are you clinging to that idea that you can, that you and God are okay because you live a pretty good life? That you're generally nice to people? That you want what's best for people for the most part? Are you clinging to that idea as the basis of your right relationship with God on the final day? Or have you accepted your helplessness before God, extended your empty hands of faith, and received God's gift of grace through faith? Let me give you one example of what this looks like in the Bible. Um, On the day that Jesus was crucified... He was actually crucified. He wasn't the only man crucified that day on that hill. He had, he had a man to his left and his right, didn't he? Two criminals. One of the thieves was hurling insults and mockery at him. We read this in, in Luke 23, 39. It says, he says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us while you're at it. If, you, if you're God, then save, save yourself. The second criminal has this amazing interaction with Jesus where he says this. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This guy was no innocent man. In fact, when, when we meet him, we don't know what his, his, his back history was, but when we meet him, he's literally pinned to a cross mid-execution for his crimes. So at the very least, he's a criminal, a guilty criminal. But what's really important to see here in this story is that he had no ability to offer anything to Jesus. He had no ability. Like, he couldn't say anything like, hey, God, if you, if you save me here, I'm, gonna, I'm going to um, I'm gonna serve you for the rest of my life. Or I, I, I'm going to go pay back all the wrong I've done. I'll, I'll make restitution, right? All these kind of ideas. No, he, he had no ability to pay anyone back. He was stuck on a cross. He had, no, he had nothing to offer God because he was about to die. This is a man who had no ability to offer anything, and all he could do is throw himself into the mercy of Jesus. Do you see what happens? What does Jesus say? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is a promise of salvation to a man who has nothing to offer. This is, this is the picture I want you to recall in your mind when you find yourself feeling undeserving of God's grace again, feeling like I can't believe I need to ask for forgiveness again. You are the man on the cross. And the sooner you realize you are as helpless as that man, 
to bring anything to the table, the sooner you'll actually understand the free, the assurance that the free gift of justification gives us. The assurance, the depth of confidence we have before God that he has saved us when we couldn't offer anything to him. We're going to look at one final word ending in shun, propitiation. Propitiating grace that costs God. This one's really important. If you've never heard that word before, don't stress. It is a weird word. It's an important word, but it's one you won't see much outside of the Bible. It's one of these like really specific Bible words. Uh, the ESV has propitiation in it. Other translations will actually go with something else that people might un- help people understand what it's trying to say. Um, ESV keeps it, uh, but we need to know what it means then. If, if, if we're going to read it in the Bible, we've got to actually figure out what it actually, what it actually means. But again, if, you, if you've never seen that word before, or you don't know what that means, don't stress. We're about to spend some time talking about it. It is very, very, very important. Before we get to defining it, I actually want to help you see the need for it before, we, before I just give you a, a quick definition. Um, let me present you a problem. A problem with what we were just talking about, right? What, what, what do we just do? Justification. Justifying, faith, uh, justifying grace for the undeserving. There's a problem with that. It's a problem that you will have heard, I'm sure. If you've been a Christian for some time, you will have found people who object to this idea. There is an objection to be made to this. How is that fair, is the objection. Isn't God morally unserious if he just forgives people because they say they're sorry? How is that okay? How is that okay? How can, he, how can he be good and then just go around forgiving people because they say they're sorry? I've, I've definitely heard this accusation a lot, right? How is that okay? How can God just go around doing that? In fact, think about our world, okay? Imagine if on the news tomorrow we found out that there was a judge who has been sitting these, you know, sitting these trials, these cases of the most horrific sort. Murder, torture, all the, all the worst things you can imagine, right? And it came out that this guy, this this judge, was just letting these people go if they said they're sorry. Oh, you said you're sorry? Okay, well, there's the door. Um, You are not guilty. In fact, you're righteous. And off you go, right? You said you're sorry. No justice for the families? Justice undone. In fact, that's injustice for the families, right? Because nothing's been done about this sin. You're forgiven if you say you're sorry, right? How is that okay? How does that make sense? How is that good? I think if there was a judge doing that, there would be riots in the streets. We would, we would make sure he went to jail for subverting justice or perverting justice, making a mockery of the justice system. And the, and, and, and the, um, the accusation goes like this. Well, how is it any different with you sitting here right now? You're guilty, and yet God just forgave you because you said you're, because you asked for forgiveness. How is God just to forgive you? How are you any different? How is he being any different from that dodgy judge? Let's not even think about the murderer or the, you know, the, the people with serious sin. What, just us. Me and you. If we are actually guilty, how can God just forgive us? This is the question. This is the reason we need to understand propitiation. This is the reason we need to understand propitiation. Let me define it to you. Again, I'll use a textbook definition for a big word. This is a a definition from Ligon Duncan, who's an incredible Presbyterian scholar at the moment in the States. Uh, He says this, 
Propitiation means averting the wrath of God by offering by the offering of a gift. It refers to the turning away of the wrath of God as the just judgment of our sin by God's own provision of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. What this word is saying is that the sacrifice of Jesus fully and finally pays the price for our sin. The cross propitiates our sin. It propitiates God's justice towards our sin, I should say. Propitiates God's justice. Other translations might use something like uh, the word, so if you opened up NIV and, and, and plenty of other kind of modern translations, they'll say something like atoning sacrifice. The cross is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, which I think is a good translation because it makes, it makes sense what's happening. It uh, communicates that same idea. Um, but let's have a little look how it's used. Let's go back to our text and we'll see this word play out and what, how it's actually used in the, in, the, in the context of Romans. Firstly, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. Do you see that? It is to show God's righteousness. So he, they're very concerned with that, that accusation that God is unjust to forgive anyone. And the Bible wants to make really clear, no, no, no. The cross was to show God's righteousness in forgiving anyone. It was to show his righteousness because in, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was also to show his righteousness at the present time for us today so that he might be just, not unjust, but that he might be just, and he might also be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just to forgive us. He's not being unjust when he forgives us. The reason that he is just to forgive us is because it is no mere forgiveness of sin. It is an atonement of sin. An atonement of sin. Do you see the difference? In fact, Paul points out, God has been forgiving people for centuries. So before Jesus died, I think Abraham, Moses, all these people in the Old Testament, God has been forgiving those people for centuries, for millennia. And there's been no, there's been no payment for their sin. Jesus is the payment for their sin as well as for our sin, do you understand? That's what he's saying here. God has been patient and he's been passing over their sin, but now that sin has been called to justice. Friends, this particular doctrine that I'm talking about right now is incredibly unpopular. So many churches have abandoned this. So many. It is very worrying how many have decided that this doesn't fit their view of God. That God is just. And so all over the world, this is very much under fire. And it's because that they don't like this idea of God having justice or his, his wrath against sin. And so if you, if you reject that, then you need to object, reject to the idea of an atonement, atoning sacrifice, and you have to effectively get rid of the cross entirely. But so many have. So many have. No, propitiation is a grace that costs God. Costing the blood of Jesus to give it to us. He covers 
our sin. He pays the price for our sin. We're going to um, spend the rest of our time today thinking a little bit about how justification, propitiation, these, these things we're talking about today, how they impact us. What do they do? How do they impact us? Uh, firstly, individually and then also corporately as a church. What do they do to us? And so we're going to have a little look at that. Firstly, individually, um, what we need to hear today is that this grace gives us deep personal assurance. Deep personal assurance. We can be very confident in the salvation we receive from God. And secondly, it brings us corporate renewal as we, as we, as a community, lay hold of the gospel. It changes a whole lot of things. So firstly, it brings us deep personal assurance. This is the game changer in your Christian walk. If you, if you don't get this, you'll be an exhausted Christian. You'll be a frustrated Christian. You'll feel worn out all the time, running on fumes, right? If you get this, it changes absolutely everything. This is the bottom line, right? That God doesn't just forgive your sin, but he exhausts the justice that is due your sin. His justice has been satisfied in full in the cross. There is no more left to pay. What is the line we just sung? I just heard it in the, um, it is well. Uh, My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Right? Not just a bit, all of it. It's gone. It's nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord that he has taken my sin. Christ has taken it as my substitute. And then Romans 8.1 is going to tell us there is now no condemnation left for those who are in Christ. Why? Because Christ took the condemnation on our behalf. He's taken it. And if he's done that, then what is there left for us? I'll tell you what there is left for us. None of that. A whole lot of grace and relationship with Christ and joy and freedom in the cross. Why? Because the price has been paid fully. Fully paid. And so I need you to, I need you to hear this. The gospel is not just forgiveness. We, we, I think we simplify it into forgiveness because it's easy to grasp. But the gospel isn't forgiveness. No, the gospel includes forgiveness for sure. But if, we, if, if, if the gospel is not just that God forgives you. The gospel is that God justifies you. And the extent to which you know the difference of those two things is the extent to which you will experience deep assurance. Deep assurance and freedom in your work. Here's what will happen if you think about the gospel as just as forgiveness. It means when you sin, yeah, you know, you have, you'll confess and you get forgiveness. You know, you know that part. But then what happens? Well, you feel like you've got to pay back God back for that. And so you, you work hard. You make sure you don't fail him again and need more forgiveness. And so what happens? You stay on the, this treadmill of works. You're trapped on this treadmill of works, running and running and running and running. And it keeps you in this mindset of, I've got to pay God back for all these grace checks I keep cashing. Do you, do you see how this works? Because you feel like your status keeps changing from righteous to unrighteous every time you sin. No. You get trapped by this guilt, the shame, and you keep looking to your own ability to stay right with God, to not need that forgiveness again, and you keep running and running and running. And justification is where God comes in and switches the treadmill off 
takes us by the hand, sits us down, looks us in the eye and says, stop running like that. What are you doing? I have forgiven you in Christ. And not just that, I have justified you. The bill has been paid fully and finally. So stop running like that. Your sins are not just forgiven. They have been destroyed. You are now righteous, eternally so. You are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ forever. Yes, you are forgiven, but you're so much more than forgiven. So much more than forgiven. God, what he does in justification is he changes the subject in your heart and in your mind and in this church from your sin to his grace. Maybe one way you know that you haven't quite got this is that you're way more concerned with your sin than you are joyous of his grace. Like it just takes up way too much of your ram. We've just been hearing from Romans that sin is a, it's real. But justification means we're freed from. Like, free, free. I don't think many of us have actually laid hold of that freedom yet. God wants to make it very, very, very clear to you. You cannot earn it. You didn't ask for it. He's come to you. He's intervened in your life. He has offered you this grace. You can't pay him back. He, doesn't, he, wants, to make it, he wants to make it clear to you. You can't pay him back. Just receive it and just worship him for that. This is how one, uh, Sir Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Welsh preacher, put it. He said this. He said, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and is no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not even look at what he hopes to be as a result of his own efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and rests on that alone. He has ceased to say, Ah, yes, I used to commit terrible sins, but I've done, I have done this and that. He stops saying that. If he goes on saying that, he has not got faith. Faith speaks in an entirely different manner and makes a man say, yes, I've sinned grievously. I've lived a life of sin. Yet I know that I am a child of God because I am not resting on my own righteousness of my own. My righteousness is in Christ Jesus Christ, and God has put that to my account. Do you see that? Do you see the difference? I hope you can see the difference. I hope you can see the difference. The eyes of faith Look not at our sin, but at our Savior. The free gift of grace in Christ builds a deep assurance in our hearts. It builds a deep assurance of the love of God towards us. I want that for you. I want that for all of us. It's it is here. It is in this word. It is in the cross of Jesus. I pray today that you would receive that assurance that is yours in Christ through faith. Through faith. Now, what happens when, a, when, we, when we all figure that out together? What happens to a church? Friends, it is this doctrine that is believed, and not just believed, but like, real, like that really transforms hearts. When this, when this doctrine takes root, this is what makes a church a church. 
There are many churches around the world that are church in name only because this isn't present. We met some people from those churches earlier in the sermon, right? Luther said that this is the article on which the church lives and dies. If we get this, we're a church. If we don't get this, we cease to be a church. We become something else. Many have. It's that important to us. So what happens then if a group of people figure this out together? What happens if there is a spiritual retrieval of the freedom that comes from justification to a group of people? It comes to an entire church. What does that look like? Maybe say it another way. What happens when a, um, with the spiritual eyes of faith, a group of people come alive to God by faith, they receive grace, and we begin to live out that freedom? We begin to really, truly anchor our lives on it, and things begin to change. What happens when that happens in a church? Well, a church will become awake to the gospel, of course, and it, all sorts of things will take place. I mean, we could spend forever thinking about what, what would happen in a church where this happens. Um, the culture would be marked by, I think, a, um, by sincere worship. If we know that we can't pay God back, how much does that fuel your desire to want to worship him? It should. I think sincere worship is the first response. It, it is our response to grace. I, it, I think other things that, that um, will mark a church is a devotion to prayer. How could we not want to draw near to this God who has saved us? Draw near in prayer, draw near in prayer together as we come alive to God. I think we'll be filled with a hope-filled joy. Become just crazy optimistic because God does crazy things, beautiful things. Be genuine unity. Genuine unity in a church, in our church. Humble faithfulness. I think an attractive, winsome witness to the world. I think when justifying faith gets into the bones of a church, it's the closest that heaven will ever be to our, our world. It's the closest thing to heaven. When a church catches these things and God begins to build these things in ever-increasing increasing measure, and I pray for our church that he would that these things would grow in our church, that they would increase, that we would grow in our devotion to prayer and grow in our devotion to uh, worship and we would serve and we would love and our witness would be fueled with a freedom, a joy and a freedom. And so today I want to call our church to this, to pursue this together. We talk about being a gospel-centered church a lot. This is what we're talking about, right? Justification by faith alone through Christ alone. And today I want to call us to rally around this once more in faith want us to commit together to saying a hard no to taking grace cheaply as if it costs God nothing. Say a hard no to pretending that we are more than we are. Let's just never be those people. Let's never pretend with each other. Let's never try to pretend with God, pretend we can earn our way with him. Let's build a culture where we are open, honest, nothing to hide. Who are we hiding from anyway, right? Let's say a faith-filled yes to unashamedly standing on these things. Sharing them with one another, proclaiming them to one another. 
Let's not be silent about these things, guys. We need these truths to be in, our, in, in, in each other's mouths so we can be strengthened. Encourage you to, to speak these things to one another. Let's say a faith-filled yes to an openness before God and before others. Bring down those walls. Let God in. And let's say a faith-filled yes to pursue good works by faith alone, through grace alone, not as, not as a way to earn God's favor. By God's grace, this can be a place where the gospel is visible. Visible. Let's pray that God would do that in our church. Let's pray. In fact, I'd ask you to stand as we pray so we can stand together in this. Lord, today we pray for a fresh experience of your grace for us. A fresh knowledge of your forgiveness. A fresh taste of the freedom and assurance that comes when we truly lay hold of this. Lord, this morning, you are here with us. You're speaking through your word, showing us our need, reminding us of the gift of grace you've given us. Lord, we are prone to wander away from these things, Lord. The gospel is so counterintuitive. that we find it easier to go with the flow in the other direction, Lord. So we thank you for the clarity of your word, Lord, that calls us to lay down all our striving and just receive your grace and joy and worship. Lord, you have loved us so well. You have loved us so well. Better than we deserve. You have made a way for us to walk side by side with you through the cross. We thank you for that gift. We worship you this morning. Lord, as we, as we uh, turn to, to respond in worship, Lord, I pray that our singing would not just be words, Lord, but it would come from the heart. So I pray now for sincere worship, joy-filled worship that we would truly, truly sing and worship to you this morning in response. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and all he has done for us. It's in his name we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen.